0: Could we pray together? Father, we thank you for what we have seen so far this morning. We thank you for these five young ladies who now graduated from high school and are preparing to enter into the next phase of their lives. And it is an exciting time, but also in many ways a fearful time. A time full of anticipation and expectation. Also, I'm sure in many ways a time of trepidation, Lord. And I pray for them, God. I ask that you might cause them to stand firm on the foundation of Christ. that as they encounter secular teachings that would deny your very existence, God, that you would continue to grip them by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray for ourselves this morning. We ask that you would help us to understand this passage of your Word. It is not by any means an easy passage, God, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to teach us today what we need to know. That we might be prepared for things yet to come. And even for our day and in, in a culture in which you are largely denied the worship that you deserve. We pray, God, that we would be the kind of worshipers that you desire. Both in this place and even more importantly outside of these walls. Proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. The only name given under heaven by which People might be saved. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Revelation thirteen, fourteen, this morning. The title of today's message is A Call to Endure. The reason that I chose that particular title is because twice in this passage we see a call for the endurance of the saints, once in chapter 13 and then again in chapter 14. Now, if you weren't here with us last week, the the groundwork for this passage was really laid in chapter 12. As we see there in chapter 12, Satan pictured as this great red dragon. Now, keep in mind here, this is symbolic language that's meant to communicate spiritual truth. And so it's not saying that literally Satan is a great red dragon, but in the way that he operates, he's a great red dragon. If you have in your mind this picture of Satan as the little dude in the red tights with the pitchfork that kind of sits on your shoulder and whispers bad things into your ear, you need to get rid of that picture. He wants you to picture him that way. But in reality, he is a fearful enemy yet not an enemy that we need to fear if we are finding ourselves today in Jesus Christ, who is the overcomer, the conqueror, and all who find themselves in Christ are overcomers and conquerors as well. We see here in Revelation 13 that the devil continues his activity in the earth. This part of the scripture is referring to a time that's yet to come. It's a time of Scripture that we know as the tribulation period. It's the last seven years on this earth as we know it before Christ inaugurates His kingdom, which will last forever. The last three and a half years of that seven years is what's known as the Great Tribulation, a time of unparalleled suffering and persecution that's going to come into the world. It's a time yet to come, and yet the Bible brings this to our attention So that we might be prepared. We talked about in weeks past how biblical prophecy is not meant to bring us into idle speculation. It's it's not meant to cause debate. It's not meant to give us something to argue about as Christians. It's definitely not something that should divide our fellowship. But biblical prophecy, as we find here in the book of Revelation, is not meant to bring us to, to speculation, but to preparation. To prepare us For the things that are yet to come in our world. These days that we are going to talk about today could come within our lifetime. There is nothing that is really holding it back at this point. And we need to be prepared. But I would say this, even if they don't come in our lifetime, or even if you happen to be one who believes that we're going to, as the church, going to be raptured before these events take place. And on that note, let me just say, I think the Bible is at least unclear on that issue. And it does still call us to be prepared for this for some reason. Even if these events don't come during our lifetime, let me say this. We live in an age and in a culture that is increasingly moving away from the things of God. It's been labeled, the culture we live in right now in America has been labeled a post-Christian culture. And there are many in our culture that rejoice over that label. Let's say, finally, we're in a post-Christian culture where we don't have to hear about all this junk from the church and we don't have to have morality defined. Morality can be whatever we want it to be and we can write the standard however we want to write the standard and we can call things that are really evil good and we can call things that are good evil. That's the age in which we live, folks. If you don't believe me, get on your TV tonight and watch the evening news. You'll see example after example after example of a culture that's moving away from biblical morality and from worshiping the one true and living God. So what do we do in an age like that? Whether we find ourselves in the Great Tribulation or whether we find ourselves in 2013 America, what do we do when we find ourselves in a place where those who worship God are increasingly, increasingly marginalized and pushed to the side? How should we respond? Well, first of all, we need to see the one who causes these things. His name is Satan, and his favorite thing to do is to make counterfeits. Satan loves to forge a fake, as we're going to talk about. We're going to use that word, forges, as our acronym this morning to look at chapter 13 and see the activity of Satan. He is behind all that's happening here in chapter 13, though I would still say he is not the main character here. You're going to see the main character clearly as we come into chapter 14. He is merely a secondary character, but I want you to see how he works. He is an enemy who forges a fake, creates counterfeits in all that he does. In verses 4 and 12, we see the first thing that he forges is a false trinity. Now, we know biblically the trinity is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God is three persons in one now. When you figure that out, you come and teach your pastor about it, because I don't, I don't fully understand that. But that is how God has revealed himself in the Scriptures. And Satan, knowing God pretty well, seeks to imitate God, to create a mockery of God in the way that he goes about his business. Ultimately, Satan is seeking to gather for himself the worship that's due to God alone. And so we see this false trinity in in, in verses 4 and 12 here. We see that, first of all, we see that Satan brings about this beast rising up out of the sea. Remember, this is symbolic imagery here, and I'll try to explain to you what's taking place. But it comes from the last verse of chapter 12. Where did we leave Satan last week? The last verse of chapter 12 says he was standing on the sand of the sea. He was at the beach, and that wasn't meant to say he's on vacation, But he was in a shaky place, the sand of the sea, Jesus described as a a place of unsure foundation, encouraging us to build our house on the rock, on Jesus Christ himself. But Satan was on the sand of the sea, and here we see him calling out of the sea this beast. And he describes this beast here very fearfully. But not just this beast, you flip over to the next portion of chapter 13, beginning in verse 11, and he says, And then I saw another beast that was rising up out of the earth. And he describes this beast as well. Two fearful beasts that rise up at the command of their father, Satan. So what is this all about? Well, the first of those beasts there, in the first verses there in chapter 13, are the one that we often hear referred to as the Antichrist. Now, many people have misunderstood that terminology because when they think of anti, you think of against, or you think of the opposite of But the Greek prefix anti, which is where we get the English prefix anti, the Greek prefix anti doesn't always mean opposed to or the opposite of. What it normally means is in the place of. And so what we find here is the Antichrist is not just one who will oppose Christ, or he's definitely not one who will just be the opposite of Christ, but he's one who will seek to stand in the place of Christ. That's what it means for him to be the Antichrist. He will seek to take the place that Christ alone is worthy to hold. Now, he won't be successful ultimately, but for a time, it says that for 42 months or three and a half years, he will be given authority. Given authority by whom? The only one who gives authority. Romans 13 says, "...is the one true and living God." God will allow him to take authority for the last three and a half years of of this portion of history that we're living in right now, that time that we call the Great Tribulation, and he will do some very dastardly things, as we'll talk about. But not just him, we see the second beast that he reversed to there in verse 11. This is one that will be referred to later in chapter 17 and 18 as the false prophet. And the false prophet will basically be the propaganda man for the Antichrist. He will be the spokesperson. He'll be the one that'll be putting out all the materials that'll be saying to people, you need to come and worship this Antichrist. And so you see these three, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they produce this false trinity that mimics the way that God works in the person of His trinity. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit points people... To Jesus, that's what the Bible teaches. The Holy Spirit in us should be constantly reminding us of Jesus Christ, pointing us to Christ in our thinking and steering our lives toward Christ-likeness. The Holy Spirit points people to Jesus in the same way the false prophet is going to point people to the Antichrist. And then God the Son, we know as Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. What is he constantly doing? But he stands as a representative of God the Father. Jesus said, everything that you see me doing, I do because of the Father. The Father instructs me in all of the things that I'm doing, Jesus said. And in the same way, that's what we're going to see with this one who's going to come in years yet to come as the Antichrist. He's going to be following in the footsteps of his Father Satan, pointing people to Satan. And so we see this false trinity that's going to occur in the last days. This false trinity will also be about omens, signs, and wonders. And it it talks about here in this chapter, as we heard read, It talks about the fact that this false prophet will be given the power to call down fire from heaven. This was a prophetic gift. We see Elijah doing this in the Old Testament days. And it happens, it's it's hinted at in various other places in Scripture where fire was called down from heaven. It was a sign of the power of God. And in mimicking that sign, the false prophet will do a similar type thing in order to draw people unto himself and to the Antichrist, ultimately unto Satan we see one of those omens is a false resurrection. You look there at verse 3 of chapter 13, describing this, this first beast, it says, uh, this, this one appears, and one of his heads seemed, it says in verse 3, to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And then you take yourself down there to verse 14, where it's talking about the false prophet there. And it says, And by the signs that he was allowed to work, the false prophet, in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast. And then how does it describe the beast? The beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And so something's going to happen as this... Antichrist comes to power in the world and begins uh, to bring about what we will see as the largest world empire that there's ever been. He will surpass Rome. He will surpass Babylon. He will surpass anything that Hitler was able to do. He will surpass what Alexander the Great was able to do. He will surpass all of those in being able to form for himself the largest empire this world has ever known. But somewhere in the midst of that, he is likely going to be somewhat, it's going to look like an assassination attempt on his life, and the world will think that he has died, but then he will be resurrected. Now, I don't think this is a literal resurrection. I think this is a ruse. I think he's going to make the world think that he has risen from the dead, because again, he wants to mimic the work of Jesus Christ. He wants to take the place of Christ in the lives of people. Not only that, not only will he have a false resurrection, but he'll also have a false gospel. In verse 14, you see the false prophet, his spokesperson is going to be telling people, this is the way to live. This is the good news. Follow the Antichrist. He won't take that title, obviously, but follow this guy and everything will go well with you. There will be a false gospel and false teaching that will pour from these guys. Not only that, but there will be exaltation all throughout this passage. You see the goal that Satan is after. He wants to be worshiped. From the very beginning, it was the pride of Satan that caused him to fall and that he wanted to take the place of God on the throne of heaven and receive all the worship that is due to God alone. And that is the primary motivating factor for Satan in the lives of those who will not pledge their allegiance to Jesus Christ, who refuse to trust in him by faith. Satan wants their worship. He wants to take their praise. He wants to be their God. And the Bible often refers to him as the God of this age. Prince of the power of the air often refers to him in these ways. But he is a usurper and a fake. And finally we see he also has his own seal. We've seen in this book how God has a way of sealing his people, putting a mark upon his people to show that they are the protected possession of Almighty God. It refers to them as the 144,000, the protected people of God. But Satan has his own mark as well. And you've probably heard of the mark of the beast. If you've been around church any at all, you've probably heard someone mention the mark of the beast. Or you've seen these numbers, 666. And you've all, people have, have argued and debated and talked for years over what this means. Is the mark of the beast some barcode that's going to be stamped on people or a computer chip that's going to be implanted in our heads? or what, what is this going to be? Well, the Bible doesn't say exactly what it's going to, but it does say exactly what it's going to mean. And that's the important part. Regardless of what form it takes, what is the meaning of these things? See, the Antichrist is going to be drawing worshipers unto himself, ultimately unto Satan, and in doing so, he will give them a mark, the Bible says. And in that day, you'll have to have that particular mark in order to participate in the economy, in order, as it says, to buy and to sell. You will be required to have that mark. Imagine what that will be like. To refuse the mark of the beast and not be able to buy food for your family anymore. Perhaps not to be able to enter into the front doors of Walmart because you're not welcome there because you don't have that particular mark. And so fathers will have to choose am I going to continue to follow Jesus or am I going to feed my family? Parents will have to make the hard decisions of whether they will stay true to the one true and living God or whether they will sacrifice that. Hard decisions will have to be made in those days. But let's just go ahead and say, folks, if we're really going to live for Jesus Christ in our day and age, in 2013 America, with the way that things are headed in the days ahead, if we're really going to live for Jesus Christ, it's not going to be in this comfortable cultural Christianity where we just sit back in our spiritual lazy boys while we watch a lot of folks go to hell because we never talk about Jesus Christ. I, for one, I'm just going to be honest here. I, for one, am looking forward to the day when comfortable cultural Christianity is going to be out the door. I'm looking forward to it because we see it far too much. We come into our churches, we hear the Word of God preached, and we sing wonderful songs about Jesus, and we never talk about Him the rest of the week, and we live just like the rest of the world. No one would even know that we were Christians except for the fact that we don't sleep in on Sunday mornings. At least not most of the time. I don't want to heap a bunch of guilt on us here. I just want to say that's the reality in which we live, folks. There's not a lot of room for comfortable cultural Christianity in China today. You know why? Because there's persecution there. There's not a lot of room for comfortable cultural Christianity in Saudi Arabia today. Because the Muslims will kill you for proclaiming the name of Christ. There's not a lot of room for comfortable culture, cultural Christianity in India today. They can't kick it back in the spiritual lazy boys because what they are doing in the name of Jesus Christ is oftentimes illegal. And they're imprisoned and they're hunted down and they're killed just like it's going to be in the last days. But we live in a place where for now, we can kind of just go through the motions. I, For one, I'm looking forward to the end of those days. So what is the mark of the beast? What is 666? Six, six, six? We're not exactly sure. It says it's the number of a man. That uh, comes from the idea that man was created on the sixth day, but it also comes from the fact that uh, the number seven is the number of perfection, and so six being less than perfect, that's the number of a man. So again, the number seven is the number for God, the number six being the number of a man That's where that comes from. And Satan repeats it three times here, again, mocking God. Remember, the Bible refers to God as holy, holy, holy. And Satan is mocking God once again with this number. And the Bible says that this calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number of a man. It's the number of a man. His number is 666. And for years, for the last 2,000 years since this was written, people have been trying to figure this one out. They tried to pin it on Emperor Nero of Rome. They tried to pin it on uh, Hitler. They tried to pin it on Mussolini, Stalin. Any of the evil world dictators that have ever lived on this earth, people have tried to pin this particular number on. And if you work the numbers some way around and try to put numbers with the letters of their names, you can pretty much make it fit anybody. But I think we don't know who this is because he hasn't arrived just yet. There's going to come on the scene a world ruler, and we need to be able to know that in that day, those who are wise, those who will look to the Word of God and see the events on the front page lining up with the pages of Scripture, those folks will be ready. But here's, here's the thing, folks. I wonder how many, of us, how many of us would be ready if that day were today. Let me ask you a question. Do you know Christ well enough to catch the counterfeit. Now, folks, it's real easy. I'm just going to go ahead and say, it is really easy for us to go, well, yeah, I know Jesus. Sure. I go to church. I own a Bible and I read it from time to time. But increasingly, as the world moves towards these events, people are going to be deceived on a rampant, scale you would think looking at these things you would think you look at this and go well everybody's certainly going to recognize the antichrist and the false prophet and they're not going to follow him it's not true though the bible says the whole world's going to go after him Except for a very small remnant, a minority will be left on the earth in those days who will stay true to the one true and living God and will not follow the false prophet, will not follow the Antichrist, and will not follow their father who's Satan himself. Would you know Jesus well enough to see the counterfeit when he comes? He's going to come with signs. He's going to come with power and authority. I think he's going to come with Scripture verses, folks. That's what the devil does. Remember, Jesus in the wilderness, when Jesus was being tempted by the devil for those 40 days in the wilderness, did not Satan himself quote the Bible to Jesus? here's how Satan quotes the Bible. He'll take the Scriptures, he'll twist it just a little bit, just to make it sound a little bit more palatable to those who are hearing, and then he'll feed it to as many people as possible. Just a little twist, but it turns the truth into a blatant lie. And if you're not going to buy the lie, you need to be so grounded in the truth that you'll know it when it comes. Those who study uh, to spot counterfeit monies, go through a particular kind of training and that training begins with studying intimately the characteristics of real money. They learn about the holographic strip that's in a real dollar bill. They learn about the fact that if you hold a piece of currency up to the light, you ought to be able to see a few symbols that you can't see just by looking at it. They learn what it feels like compared to what false money feels like. And here's how they recognize the counterfeit. They get to know the real thing so well that when the counterfeit is placed before them, they go, that's not the real thing. Do you know Jesus that well? are you merely just acquainted with him do you gaze into the perfect mirror of his word and see the glorious face of Christ do you know his gospel are you diving into his word and becoming so grounded in his word that when the counterfeit comes you'll know it because I'm going to tell you folks the counterfeit is already here you can see him on your TV screen there's all kinds of preachers out there today who are talking about things that sound like the gospel. They love to talk about the love of God and how God wants to bless people and how God wants to, his people to be prosperous, but you'll never hear them talk about persecution. They love to talk about how God wants to bring us joy and peace and financial gifts and blessings, but they'll never talk about the wrath, the justice, the judgment of God that's coming. And they take the parts of the gospel they like and leave the rest. And by doing so, they might as well be ripping pages out of their Bibles because they're only feeding to their people the parts that are palatable. But you know the counterfeit when you see it. Well, you know the gospel so well that when you see a false gospel, you can call it what it is. Because folks, many are going to be led astray. Many already have been. And many more will be. Not to leave us on that note, we see in chapter 14 that God reveals the reality. Satan is all about the counterfeit. All about the fake. All about the forgery. When God steps back on the scene here in chapter 14, when John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion, there in Jerusalem, stood the Lamb, and with Him the 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. As John turns his attention back to what God is doing, God begins to reveal some realities that we need to come face to face with. Whether you find yourself in that comfortable cultural Christianity today, kicking back in the spiritual lazy boy, or whether you find yourself completely apart from Christ altogether, not knowing Him, or whether you find yourself in passionate relationship with Jesus Christ, where you are growing to know Him more and more every day as you dive into His Word, as you share Him with others, wherever you find yourself today, you need to see this reality, because this will be the reality for all mankind first part of that reality is that it's about the redeemed it's about the redeemed I believe this 144,000 folks, whether that's an actual number or a symbolic number, either way, I believe it represents the redeemed people of God. These are those who were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, at the cross of Calvary some 2,000 years ago. He paid the price so that those who would trust Him by faith could have eternal life, could be saved from death and hell and the grave and the sin that caused it, that we could be cleansed by him these are the redeemed the protected possession of almighty god with his mark on their foreheads his name written upon their bodies so that everyone knows these belong to him these belong to the lord and they come along with this angel in verse 6 proclaiming an eternal gospel let's look at it together he says, I saw an angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And the good news is that there is one name given under heaven by which we might be saved. And His name is Jesus Christ. And the world that we live in calls that close-minded. See, how can you say that there's only one way to heaven? We say it because it's what the Bible says, folks. We don't say it because we're bigots. We don't say it because we're close-minded. We don't say it because we want to keep people out. We want to invite people in because the truth of the matter is, He is the Savior for all mankind. None are excluded by the fact that Jesus is the only way. He is the only way because He could be the only way. He's the only possible way. For sin-soaked human beings who are deserving of the wrath of God. We sang that in a song a little while ago and I love that line because we need to hear, we need to be reminded of the fact that we are in our sin are only deserving of God's wrath until Jesus stepped in at the cross and paid that penalty for us. Taking the wrath of God upon Himself so that we could have life. And for that reason, He is worthy of Of our adoration, look at verse seven. The angel said with a loud voice, "Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water." It begs the question of us today: What is it that we adore? What is it that we give rightful, fearful respect to in our day? To whom do we see glory due? Who do we worship? Because He alone is worthy, folks. The celebrities of our culture are not worthy of our worship. The sports stars of our culture are not worthy of our worship. Our political leaders are certainly not worthy of our worship. I, at least I ought to get an amen on that one. He alone's worthy folks. And the gospel calls men and women and boys and girls to worship him, because that's what you were designed to do. Whether you realize it or not, you were a being created for worship. And you will worship. The only question that remains is, what will you worship? Or who will you worship? You will worship. You'll reveal worship by the way that you spend your time, by the way you write your checks, by where you go and what you do, by what captivates your thoughts. As we heard a couple of weeks ago, we need to learn to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Why? Why? Because it's an act of worship. It's what you were created to do. But so often our worship is split. We pay lip service to God and then we worship our culture. We worship our living. We worship our lives by everything else that we do. But there will come a day when there will be none other who will be worshipped but the one who is worthy. Next we see the line like lamb. He comes out here again. The false prophet was a lamb-like dragon, as he's described there in chapter 13, in verse 11. And then here in verse, chapter 14, we see once again the lion-like lamb, as we've seen him before, the lamb who was slain. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's described this way because it's the perfect description of him. But for so many of us, we only see the lamb. We see the love and the mercy poured out of the cross. And we need to see that, folks. But chapter 14 here begs us to see not just the Lamb, but to see Him as the Lion who will come in His wrath and in His judgment as He was meant to do because those who are continuing in sin and refusing obedience to Him, refusing to pay Him the honor He is due, are deserving of His wrath. And if you don't see that, and you don't see sin for what it is. The only reason that we see the wrath of God as going overboard is because we underestimate our sin and the gravity of it. In our sinfulness, we have acted in absolute rebellion against a holy God, and we deserve his wrath. But He gave us something else in its place, and we'll get there in just a moment. All these blessings come to us in Jesus. The eye on your outline. It's mentioned there in in verse 12. And in verse 12, He says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. I believe this is a key word in these in these chapters verse 10 of chapter 13 says here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Verse 12 of chapter 14 here's a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. How do you know if you're really going to be saved? So many people struggle with their salvation. They struggle over the fact of well, well, perhaps I'm going to commit one sin too many or perhaps I'm going to do something that's really going to offend God and I'm going to lose my salvation. I, I, for one, believe that the Bible firmly teaches that those who are truly saved will persevere to the end because God, by His Holy Spirit, will cause them to persevere to the very end. He will not lose one. Christ said, I will not lose one of those the Father has given me. So how do you know if your, if your salvation is real and true? How do you know if you're truly saved? The answer is you endure. The answer is you persevere. The answer is when the going gets tough, you don't give up on Christ. The answer is when persecution comes, it only causes your faith to spring up and to well up into further eternal life-giving power in your life. It's, the truth of the matter is you will know that you're saved when you endure. You'll know that you're saved when you persevere. And we see it here. For those who are in Christ, the call to endurance. Just a couple more things and we're going to wrap this up. He speaks here of two harvests. And this is a harsh reality, folks. And I I want to paint it as the Scriptures do. If it offends you, I could apologize, but I just won't. Because this is the Bible. It's the Word of God and we need to hear it. He says there's going to be two harvests that are to come. In the last days, when Jesus comes, he's going to bring a harvest. You see it there, the first of these two harvests in verse 14. John says, I looked and behold. And that word behold means pay attention. There's something important here. Don't get distracted. Behold a white cloud. Seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. This is Jesus himself. The Bible says he will come on the clouds of heaven. And What will he come to do? With a golden crown on his head, his kingship, a sharp sickle in his hand, what he's coming to do is he's coming to reap a harvest. That's exactly what he does. In verse 16 it says, So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. I believe this is the harvest of all who've trusted in Christ. When he comes together, all of his people to himself, all of us have trusted Christ by faith. If you are among that number today, this will be your harvest. One day He will come back for you. You don't have to lose heart and you don't have to fear even if rampant persecution breaks out in our country against the followers of Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear because He's coming back for you and you're going to spend eternity with Him. But there's another harvest as well. It starts there in verse 12. Verse 17, I'm sorry. Verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. And he said, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And you go, Well, what does that mean? Translation: horse's bridle approximately four feet tall. 1,600 stadia is 185 miles. Folks, that's a lot of blood. And you go, Well, that's just symbolic language, obviously. But remember, symbolic language is meant to picture for us spiritual truth. And so the spiritual reality is much worse than a four-foot-high trail of blood for 185 miles. That picture is merely a hint of the horrors that are to come for those who refuse to trust in Christ, refuse to walk in obedience to the one true and living God, refuse to pay Him the worship that He is due. We see these two harvests. One results in rejoicing in heaven. The people of God finally seeing the fullness of their salvation. The other results... Screams of horror as people are literally cast into what is described here as the wine press of the wrath of God. Back in those days, a wine press was used for exactly what you would think, the crushing of grapes. They would harvest the grapes, they would take them to the wine press, and they would crush those grapes in order to bring forth the juice from which they would make their wine. And that is the picture of what is happening here. That all of those who've refused obedience to the Lord, who would not take Christ at His Word and come to salvation, will be harvested by the Lord's angel and they will be crushed. Crushed to death. And they will wish that death was the end. But as the Lord said to Adam in the garden, when he chose sin over obedience to God, and the Lord said, in dying you will die. You'll die, and you'll die, and you'll die some more. This is no annihilationism where you die, and then it's just all over, just blackness, all done. No, it's what's described here. It's what's described in verses 10. 10. So he will have to drink from the wrath of God's, the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. If that doesn't send a shiver up your spine, it really ought to. You really weren't listening. Eternal torment. For those who reject Christ, it's a serious business, folks. And so, two pictures here that I want to leave you with, and both of them relate to the last point on your outline. This is about your eternal destiny. What he's talking about here relates to every person in this room. It doesn't matter what you think about Jesus right now, it doesn't matter what you think about the Bible. I'll just say it this way. If these things are true, then you're going to find yourself in one of two places. You will either find yourself in one of two harvests. You're going to find yourself in one of those two harvests. The harvest of the followers of Jesus Christ who are going to spend eternity rejoicing in heaven in their salvation or those who've rejected Christ. He refers to it here as The cup of God's wrath. And that picture comes from the Old Testament. God's judgment and wrath is often pictured as as a cup that's poured out on the earth. God's wrath, like this acid, this poison that kills anything in its path. Let me just say something to you about that cup this morning, folks. You have to make a choice about that cup. And you don't get to choose to be neutral. There's no Switzerland, no gray area, no sitting the fence on this one. You have to make a choice about the cup of God's wrath over your life. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And that word death might as well be translated wrath. The wrath of God is on your life because of your sin. It's an undeniable reality. But what you do with that wrath is still up for question. Here are your two options. Either you yourself will drink the cup of God's wrath and suffer eternal torment in a place called hell for all eternity, or you will allow another to drink that cup for you. And by the way, he already has. See, that's what Jesus was doing. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember what he prayed? Father, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? What was that cup? It was the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath. And Jesus was saying, Lord, Father, if there there be any other way but this, could we go that way? Could we do something else? But then he also said, but Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross and at the cross he drank to the very bottom the cup of the wrath of God that should be poured out on all of our lives because of our sin. We are do it and he drank it down to the bottom. And you're faced with this choice of whether you're going to put your faith in the one who drank the cup of God's wrath for you or whether on one day that is yet to come you're going to have to drink that cup yourself. The fullness of God's wrath was placed upon Him. He became a curse for us so that we might be blessed by God. He took the death that was due us so that we might have the life of God. He who knew no sin of His own became sin for us so that we might in Him become the righteousness of God. And the question of the day, the question of all eternity is, what are you doing with Jesus? He is the sole factor in determining your eternal destiny. You will not be able to work your way out of God's wrath. There are no great scales where God's going to put all your good works on one side and all your bad works on another, and as long as you are more good than bad, he's going to say, oh, that's good enough. There is no good enough. There is only one who is good That is God alone. And when we stand before Him in His holiness, I can guarantee you there will not be one excuse that you will be able to utter. You will know I am undone. And you'll drink that cup of wrath unless the cup has already been drunk for you because you trusted in the provision He made in Christ. The same picture is what I'll leave you with. So which harvest is yours? You don't get to opt out on this one, folks. You just don't. There is no plan B. There is no Switzerland, no neutral ground, no gray territory. There is, there is no fence to sit on. You will take place yourself, personally, personally. In one of these two harvests at the end of the age, it will either be the harvest of the righteous since he will spend eternity in the uttermost joy of heaven, rejoicing over their salvation, rejoicing over the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world and the fact that they chose to trust in him and were saved by his blood, or it will be the winepress of God's wrath which you can escape if you'll trust in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask today, I know that there have been some heavy, heavy things, some heavy images for us today. In so many levels, it would just be easier for us to come in and talk about the peace and your love and, and your grace over us. And we want to emphasize those things, God, but not at the detriment of the fullness of the truth that one day all of us will stand before you. And we will either stand before you clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which we've received by grace through faith in him, Or we will face the wine press of your wrath. We will face the harvest of those who have, in their sinful rebellion, chosen to reject the offer of eternal life in Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to get real today to flee from the wrath of God that is to come and to trust in the Son of God who has already come and is coming again. And may we act upon what we've heard this very day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song together. This is what we call a time of invitation. If you're here today and you've not trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you want to do that today, it's as simple as this. It's as simple as turning from your sin, repenting of your sin, and trusting in Christ. Trust what He did for you at the cross. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your ability to save yourself. You cannot do it. And the wrath of God is coming. Flee from His wrath and come to Christ. Folks, let's just get away from our comfortable cultural Christianity. Let's get away while the getting is good. And let's live in these realities that there is a lost and dying world out there that needs to know our Jesus. So you respond as the Lord leads you as we sing this song.